Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, I am thrilled to welcome my guest, the author and philosopher, Peter Bogosian. He recently co-wrote a fantastic book with James Lindsay called How to Have Impossible Conversations. Really important in our current political climate, I'm sure you'll agree. Now, today I wanted to talk, Peter, mostly about free speech, um, because I think one of the significant aspects of the critical social justice movement that you've written so much about, and that kind of activism, is there seems to be uh, a scepticism around the importance of free speech. Um, and I thought it would be good for us to discuss that. And because so many of these activists don't want to debate, they actually see discourse and debate as part of the problem. And it's very difficult to get them on <laughs> to debate their side because they, they just won't agree to participate. So what we'll do today is I will take their stance. I will uh, take the uh, free speech skeptic stance, present that argument and uh, allow you to rebut it. How do you feel about that? Uh, uh, <laughs> I think you have your work cut out for you, but I'm happy to do so. Well, let's see what happens. Um, mm. That's how we'll do this. So um, thank you for joining me, Peter. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start uh, with this idea about public debate and the value of public debate, because the point is that public debate really doesn't often change people's minds. And so what it is, it's a kind of a performance <clears throat> that essentially ends up uh, dignifying and legitimizing ideas uh, in the public square. Haven't we reached a point where some ideas are just beyond the pale? There isn't a debate to be had about the rights and wrongs of slavery. There isn't a debate about whether gay people or trans people should have uh, basic human rights. Don't you see the danger of legitimizing bad ideas by making them seem more palatable and reasonable than they actually are? Well, there, there are multiple things happening in that. Uh, I don't know if it's a question, but the first is that w whether or not ideas, uh, people change their mind as a result of debates. I don't, I don't think that's true in the, the correspondence I had with another person from your island, Lori Penny, I gave the example of Christopher Hitchens and Stephen Fry debating referendums about the Catholic Church and homosexuality and, and things of that nature. In the audience, it was a resounding win. And the Catholic Church recoiled from, from the results of that and even the debates between atheists and Christians. So I'm not sure that it change that it doesn't change people's minds. I'd, I'd need to see evidence for that. But and I'm, I, I also want to bundle that with I personally, the older I get, the less I am a fan of debates because it forces people to think in a win lose mentality as opposed to change their mind if they 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 feel that the other side has a stronger argument. So that's one thing. But the second thing, in terms of are there some ideas that we've that have just run their course if there are, what does prohibition of conversations do? It doesn't make them go away. It just makes them faster. It just makes it so that those people will continue to have uh, conversations and they'll think that there's some kind of, of a conspiracy against their belief systems because they're not allowed to, to talk about those ideas. If you genuinely believe that there are reasons for your beliefs, then it should be no problem to air those in the public square or have conversations with people about them. So I'm not, I'm not buying that argument at all. But can I just push back on that a little bit? I mean, let's of give course. a well, let's give a hypothetical. If there is because there is so much of the performative about the debate, of uh, there's so much of the theatrical about it. If you have a scenario where uh, somebody is advancing a very pernicious idea, but they do so with eloquence, they're perhaps the more intelligent uh, participant, and right. the person who is defending 
the more morally uh, right stance uh, is uh, maybe weaker, doesn't have the, the fluency of language or this kind of thing. The danger there is that it ends up looking like the wrong side has won, whereas actually all that's happened is one side, one side of the debate has performed better than the other. Yeah, that's true. In education, you call that the Dr. Fox effect. It's interesting. They, they had um, gar- people give garbled lectures about nothing in a boring way. And then people give <laughs> give uh, uh, very animated theatrical lectures. And the students found they got more out of the animated theatrical yeah. lectures that actually said nothing. So th- that's uh, I think that there's a lot that's true to that. And the question is, what do you take from that? Do you take from that that we should ban speech? Or do you take from that that we should give people the tools to understand rhetoric and debate and argumentation? The other thing is, again, I'm not sure what prohibition of that speech would do. If you prohibit people from publicly engaging ideas, do you think they're not going to believe certain things anymore? Or do you think they're not going to talk about them? That that seems to be patently false to me. But you could reach a scenario where people people understand that certain views are beyond the pale. And if they want to have those conversations, they effectively become a kind of social pariah. So the conversations might still be going on, but they're not going on in such a way that they will radicalize or proselytize or influence other people and and turn them around that point of view. Why not? In fact, if anything, they would be more likely to do that because you're you're, you're having to have them behind closed doors. So, So there wouldn't be social pressure on people in that case. I see. And so you're saying you wouldn't hear that other, the, the other stance and, and they wouldn't be held up to scrutiny anymore, is what you're saying. Yes. The best way to sharpen steel is with steel. You, you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't even, they wouldn't even know what the other side of the argument is. In fact, we've already created that. You don't even need to look very far. We've already created that in the university system. And do you think that's working out well? When there are certain ideas and propositions that can't be questioned at all? No. It, what happens is people become more certain of their beliefs does, though, seem to depend on the presupposition that participants in debate are all willing to play along by the same rules. We have to face facts. There are very toxic individuals in society. Hold, hold on. What do you mean by rules? What rules? Like they'll adhere to the time limits or they'll not punch you in the head or what, what rules? No, are no. Well, no, I'm not talking about the specific rules about time limits or anything else that, that happens with debate. What I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking more metaphorically than that. We're playing when you when you enter into a discussion with someone. The, the, the implicit rules of that discussion are that you're going to tell the truth. You're going to uh, take the other person at their word. No. You're, in other words, you're no. going to argue in good faith. That's a fiction. That's ahistorical. Socrates never had any of those rules in the Platonic dialogues. I already talk, you talk to people who don't believe things. I taught in prisons and I taught, spoke all the time with, with prisoners who I have no idea what they believe. It doesn't matter. Oh, so I don't think you can get in, enter into a conversation, can you, with someone if, if they're continually going to misrepresent your point of view and lie about what they really think for nefarious motives. How can that possibly work as a debate? That's the current situation in which we find ourselves now, right? Yeah. I'm, the current situation in which we find ourselves are people's positions are constantly misconstrued and <clears throat> mischaracterized. They're not good faith actors, to borrow a turn of phrase from Christians. Um, that doesn't mean the conversation is impossible. That just makes, that just puts it into hard mode. And so the question is, what do you do in response to that? Mm. But that's a separate question from whether or not we should ban those conversations entirely. Arguing that we should ban those conversations entirely, it, it doesn't matter who the actors are and if they're acting in good faith or lying or misrepresenting at all. The the issue is who is the governing body that decides whether or not people can talk and what they can talk about. 
Okay, well let's 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 consider that. Um, do we not have we not reached a certain point where on certain issues there is a consensus, and therefore we don't need a kind of governing body, a, a kind of overseer to say. Uh, this matter is settled now. We, we don't really need that because we've already kind of generated that amongst ourselves. How is the consensus reached? Well, I suppose it depends on which uh, topic you're talking about in particular. But if we take, let's take the, ob the obvious example of slavery, though. You okay, see? you can take slavery, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Rights Act of 1968. In every one of those cases, it was free speech that allowed it. There's a, a lovely little um, um, statement by Ira Glasser, the former head of the um, ACLU, in which he talks about the, the I think one of the, the, the um, I don't want to say errors, but I'll say errors. The error in this conversation is that the assumption of the, that those are in power, there are certain truths to be known, and that those individuals who are in power, it serves them to... Um, limit the speech when the exact opposite is true. The only way those things came to be known in the first place was through discourse, dialogue, counterexample, et cetera. They didn't just come on high. Now, I know we have you know, people who think that that um, certain moral truths come on high, but in democracies and democratic societies, the way that you get to that, it's like your house of commons, right? Mm. Um, is, is through debate and dispensation. It, it's not through you know, lived experience. It's through that's in, in the West. We have this idea that that's how we know things. We know things through dialogue, through dialogos. We know things through that process. And so I would argue that the very things that you're claiming to know have themselves been the consequence of free speech. But are truths always reached in that way? Are they not sometimes uh, diktats from on high? I mean, if you think it just in terms of basic uh, Christian ethics, we have the Ten Commandments. We have rules uh, from above that tell us how, what to do. Even even just on the basic level of uh, socialization in childhood, we have parents to tell us the difference between uh, right and wrong. How is that really any different from uh, a benevolent government? Yeah, saying, so they're, or setting they're, laws, in fact, laws and legislation. Is that not the same okay. thing? Okay, well, because there's a lot of things there. So first of all, with the with the rules for parents. There's a difference in that case. That's a category error because the children are not, are not fully formed epistemic agents, right? So they're not morally capable. You know, if a five-year-old pulls out a gun and shoots somebody, mm -hmm. they're not going to be, it's not, you don't bring homicide. Uh, I don't know, on your island, the witch doctor does it, but in the continent over here, we don't, we don't do that. And so there are rules governing the behavior of children that are very different. So, the, so your epistemic status um, determines in large part the moral rules that you're held by. The, the, the second piece, you're giving me a lot in each thing. I don't want to go by each one. Yep, fair enough. Um, I just want to make sure that I address them. So what was this, the second piece? Well, I was making oh, the, about, about the Christian ethics. Well, not just yeah. Christian, the Abrahamic religions generally. You know, they, they, they have moral dictates laid out and applied as, as a fundamental aspect of the faith. The Catholic Church has a catechism, for goodness sake, right. of, of, of sets of rules to be followed. Right. And so why why would an outsider view that as legitimate? I don't suppose an outsider would uh, view that okay. as legitimate. So, so if an outsider is a version of the outsider test for faith, so if, if, an, out, if an outsider, it's John W. Loftus's idea, which has a long pedigree in the literature, but if, if an outsider wouldn't view it, then how can we, we come to consensus on an ideal if we live in a, a society, if we live in a democracy? How could people must, agree? But you must you must believe that there, there are universal uh, goods and universal bads. You must believe in, I suppose, a kind of Kantian idea of 
of the categorical imperative, something that you can apply universally as being right or wrong. We all agree. No one wants to be murdered. Exactly. And all of those things, and you mentioned the, and you mentioned Kant categorical, but all of that is rationally derivable, right? And so when something is rationally derivable, you can articulate the reasons for it. Every inquirer will come to that conclusion. Mm. The Catholic catechism isn't like that. And so the very thing that you promulgated, you put forth right now is itself a product of reason, debate, discourse and argumentation. But okay, but if we if we strip away all of the the elements that would be contested by any outsider, not of the faith, things such as transubstantiation, I wouldn't expect a non-Catholic to go along with that that viewpoint. But there are core ethical elements within the faith, such as we don't lie, we don't murder. We don't bear false witness, whatever, whatever you want, which which are actually trans-historical, cross-cultural and cross-religion and 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 indeed a part of the ethical backbone of atheists as well. Is it is it pious because the gods love it or do the gods love it because it's pious? That's Socrates's question in the Euthyphro. So is the question that that those moral conditions existed and then humans latched on to those and created rules and said that they were given by God or, or is it an, uh, something else? The Euthyphro dilemma in that case is extremely important to look at and think about. But in any case, um, you, you can still rationally derive why we shouldn't go on killing sprees, why, why we shouldn't cheat or lie or steal. However these things are derived, we all, we all accept that we have reached a point where in a civilized society, we do not want to hear someone stand up and call uh, for the murder of gay people, for instance. And we, we uh, accept that. Uh, but but do, you, do you see what you smuggled in there? You smuggled in uh, um, uh, regardless of how these are derived. But how they're derived is everything. The method that we came Why? to know that is everything. Why is it? Why is it everything? Why because, does it matter because how we it bends, To borrow a phrase from Martin Luther King, because that method bends the moral arc toward justice. Moral, the moral arc isn't bent towards justice by a bunch of fringe thugs going out and beating up people and claiming they're anti-fascist or ripping down statues. It comes through thoughtful, well-reasoned deliberation of ideas and as, as how we move forward in a society toward our flourishing. And societies that don't have that as a core value think that they're like the Taliban, I think, is the perfect example of this. Okay. They think that they're leading themselves to the truth and human flourishing, but exactly the, is, is the opposite. And the farther you get from those ideals of freedom of speech and free discourse, the more you have to make rules to prevent people from speaking, political correctness, blasphemy, et cetera. So I think to be blunt with you, I think you've reversed, you've got it exactly backward. You can be as blunt with me as you like, Peter. Um, well, how do well, we know then? So how do we know then that somebody standing on a, a, like the speaker's corner or platform calling for the death of homosexuals or white people or brown people? How do we know that's wrong? Well, we can figure that out. Right. We, we, there, yeah. there are ways to come to moral truth. And it's not some kind of a revelation that we have. It's articulating that and engaging with others and ideas to come to a consensus. Now, that doesn't mean that that we all have to agree upon what the consensus is. Moral, moral reasoning is very, very tricky. But part of that is mutual understanding. And the German philosopher Habermas talks about that. You have a discourse and a dialogue to mutually understand that people not necessarily to agree, but on your stance, you can't even have a mutual understanding. You have a kind of catechism again. So you even rob people from, from the very ideal that they can understand others in a speech act. 
But it seems that you have a great faith in, in human nature to, to be able to hear. Uh, I have no faith at all, <laughs> not even in human nature, none. But, but I mean, if but, you read Stephen Pinker's book, Better Angels of Our, of Our Nature, we know that things are getting better. Michael Shermer's The Moral Arc. We know things are getting better. But the, one of the reasons they're getting better, I would argue the primary reason that they're getting better is because we have free and open societies. We have the tradition of the that the Enlightenment has handled. Well, let me give you an example from personal experience. So when, when I was growing up, it was absolutely commonplace to hear homophobia, casual, casual anti-gay comments, not just amongst friends and family, but on television, you know. And as a result, there were no gay kids out at school. That just wouldn't have been conceivable right. uh, when I was growing up. Now it's very, very common. And part of the reason it's very common is because over the decades, the in intervening decades, it has become uh, unacceptable to express those kinds of views. And so therefore people growing up now simply don't have uh, are not familiar with that discourse. They're not familiar with the idea uh, that you would uh, articulate those ideas or that even, even that you would even think them. And I suppose what I'm saying is there is a relationship between some of our thoughts and ideas and the language with which those ideas are expressed. Some of those thoughts actually only come, come to being because we have heard them. So in other words, if you eliminate from the discourse, if you eliminate the very concept of an anti-gay sentiment from the public discourse, then to be homophobic becomes incoherent and becomes something that is impossible. In other words, we can, we can eliminate these things by simply curbing speech. Okay, so two things. First, how do you know which speech to curb? Well, as I said, the example I was giving was quite specific about um, people. Yeah, well, what's the, what's, someone what's who would the, say, for instance, that, that being gay is, is evil and that, that gay people should not be... Uh, uh, it should not have equal rights in society. That's an example of the kind of sentiment I'm talking about. Okay. And, and we, we figure that out. How is it not self-evident? No. Well, I mean, if it were self-evident, people wouldn't have believed it. The very fact that people believed it means it's not self-evident. Yes. Although we are now living in a society that is sustained by the notion of a liberal democracy and equality. Uh, it's enshrined into law. Even the idea of what's self-evident is itself, a, I know it's sounds weird, but it's really true. It's a construction, right? So we have a kind of myopia, a moral myopia that, that... But can I just ask, do you accept the point that there are fewer homophobic people living today because they were not exposed to homophobic uh, ideas expressed verbally when they were growing up? No, I don't. And, and I think that if I understand your question correctly, I think we can look at we can look at it empirically. There are fewer homo homophobic people today in the West. Are there fewer homophobic people in the Muslim world, for example? Well, no, because that's precisely the kind of society in which it is acceptable and even honorable uh, to denigrate gay people. That's my point. Right. And, and what would what would they need to liberate them of that? They need a diktat? No, they would well, need no, but if it came about by diktat, that would still have the same impact. Yeah, but it would never, you can't, diktats don't change the moral mind. The moral mind is changed by reason and argumentation and emotional things in people's emotional lives. But not when it comes to socialization. I mean, not when it comes, when it comes as you said yourself, children are not fully formed beings. Okay, okay so hold, hold on. Hold on. Let's go back. Let's go back to what you just said. I want to linger on that because that's an important point. So, when you asked me the question uh, about homophobia, I said, yes, in, in the United States, it's significantly decreased. And I would argue there's no question about it. And I gave you some examples, even birth control's example, that freedom of speech <clears throat> is one of the things that enabled that. In the Muslim world right now, and not even the Muslim world, but large swaths of Russia as well, homophobia is a pretty, a very, very serious problem. Yeah. 
they would need to emancipate them from the belief from that belief. And again, with the uh, the theme of bending the moral arc toward justice, they would need to be exposed to different ideas. They would need to debate that. They would need to 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 be shown the other side to have any possibility of changing the moral mind. So I think that the argument that you've made contradicts itself. You don't think, though, that uh, to take Russia as the example, if you didn't have people like Vladimir Putin and his uh, cronies uh, openly denouncing gay people, if that wasn't happening, you, you don't accept that uh, the levels of homophobia would be much less than they currently are. No, no, that's certainly a contributory factor. But the speech restrictions and speech rights are there. And I'm again, I'm no expert in Russia, but I know that um, which the pushy pussy riot and and yeah. other examples of people who have criticized Putin or spoken out about issues. They, they've gone through hell, those those young women and, and other people who have questioned the the edicts of the Putin administration. And so I think, again, that just goes to prove my point and show that the point you're trying to make, it doesn't even rise to the level of being fallacious because, well, it's almost nonsensical because there's there's overwhelming evidence that when people are given the opportunity to speak back in free and open societies, they do so. And, and, they, and they develop systems and rules and methods of engaging that are far more likely to lead them to the truth and be able to con- contradict or um, go against what they're told. So when Putin or, or whoever it, it talks about homophobia or whatever silliness they want to talk about, danger, yeah. harmful nonsense, the way to push back on that is to have this free and open societies, have open inquiry to be able to question that. It's not to silence people. But, you know, do we not need, though, hate speech laws? Do we? I mean, because what I'm driving at is the idea of, I mean, you were saying, you know, who, effectively who decides uh, what speech is acceptable, what speech is not acceptable. And I'm suggesting that actually we can trust uh, a government to decide where those parameters lie. And I, no, I know I know you'll find that funny. But, but if, wait a minute, Peter, if a democracy is working properly, then you, right. can, then you can trust the authority figures because the authority figures are subject uh, to the-, the whole, wait, wait a second, wait a second. The whole way that we know that the, the democracy is running um, properly to use your word <clears throat> is is that we have a, an ability to question and challenge, et cetera. Again, I would I would more than that. No, but we could we, no. What I'm saying is we have the power in a democracy as citizens to vote out a, a pernicious government. We put those people in charge and we say to them, you are in a position to set the rules, set the parameters of speech because we trust you. And if you and if you don't do that right, we can get rid of you. That's how democracy works. So in a, I accept your point that in a t- yeah. tyranny with a despot, that's a bad idea that a despot gets to decide what what speech is allowed and what speech is not allowed. But if you have a benevolent government that is that is uh, regulated effectively by the democratic electoral system, then it can work and then it's okay. I uh, was reading something today, and I just want to read you the very little piece from Ira Glasses because I think it's it's so interesting. The former head of the ACLU. Or as I once told a group of black university students in the 1990s who favored hate speech codes, if such codes had been in effect in the 60s, Malcolm X, not David Duke, would have been their most frequent target. Because the only thing that matters with speech restrictions is who decides how to apply them. And it usually isn't vulnerable minorities, whether political, racial or sexual. And that is the essence of what I think the the disagreement is speech is always always best 
the only way that people can attempt to emancipate or liberate themselves from some kind of tyranny is through speech. I mean, you, you speak as though uh, absolute free speech is the best way to protect minorities. But hate speech laws are actually prove the opposite. Hate speech laws are there to protect the marginalized. Give me specific examples of hate speech laws and how they've protected the marginalized. Okay. Uh, in this country, we have uh, the Communications Act 2003, which prevents people from sending grossly offensive material online, posting something that could be grossly offensive. Um, and a lot of these uh, prosecutions that occur and investigations and arrests are because people have posted explicitly racist um, uh, statements online. And what that does is that that creates a culture uh, in which uh, minority groups uh, uh, or demonizing minority groups becomes legitimized, becomes commonplace. So therefore you see how uh, uh, mi minorities are effectively protected by those hate speech okay. codes that are put into place. Okay. So, so let's, I, I can't, I, I am not familiar with the, the, law with with your, with your legal <laughs> system on the island you don't, have, uh, but, you don't have you have a first amendment we have an unwritten constitution so it's a different okay. yeah we don't uh, have that yeah uh, uh, okay so so i think at this point in the conversation we have to say is one a free speech absolutist and i'll give you the best argument that i have that buttresses your position once you say that you're not a free speech absolutist and the question is what's the threshold and it would seem to me that a reasonable threshold would be the specific targeting of people with an immutable characteristic for for death or enslavement or murder. Yes. And that's a separate conversation, however, about the larger issue of free speech. But I'll give you the, the best argument. I've never heard it anywhere. So you'll hear you hear it first. <laughs> you hear it first. I was this is this is the problem with. Um, the whole idea of free speech is that the people who are against free speech won't have conversations with you. So you have to develop arguments yourself yeah. that are better than the positions that they would have given you. So you spend a lot of time thinking, but that's it's a very inefficient way to think clearly. Um, the thing that I was thinking of is what if there were a young kid, maybe a six, 17 year old kid who happens to be some kind of a, a you know, chemistry prodigy or what have you. And he figures out or she figures out that by mixing ordinary inexpensive chemicals together in certain ratios produces some some horrific gas capable of killing people. And then that that kid wants to go on tour and start talking on YouTube and saying, hey, you know, for you know, four dollars, you can make this thing that kills hundreds of thousands of people. You can let it out in, in you know, tubes or whatever, the teas or whatever you call them in subways. Should we allow that? Mm. I don't know. I think that's a really good question. My yeah. my gut is to say absolutely not. Right. I think the that problem, would be mine too. <laughs> yeah. The, the the problem is once you start even attempting to suppress information like that, it's problematic. But so if you can, if we can both admit that that's a line that that we have to say, okay, so this is a line that's been crossed. Yeah, but, but then you're not a free speech absolutist. You know, you are, you are acknowledging there that the government. No, that's correct. The, that's the, correct. I, in that case, the, 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 the acknowledgement of that would make one not a free speech absolutist. That's so, absolutely correct. But, but, but you can extend that even further because the, the government's uh, principal duty is the defense of its citizens, the protection. Well, so, okay. That's why I mentioned that. That's exactly yeah. right. So if you, if you admit that should be banned, then what's the next thing? And that's the, the right. problem with concept creep, right? The problem is that once you admit something in, 
it just keeps creeping all the way down until we get, well, that hurts my feelings or that offended me. But I think hate speech is a little bit more than just a feeling of offence. If we are prepared to accept that uh, there is a safeguarding element to the government's responsibilities, and even not just the government, let's say a university campus, you know, uh, there is a duty of care uh, from the university uh, authorities to the students. And whilst free speech is absolutely essential in an academic context, surely when it comes to, surely students have a right and actually, and the university authorities have a duty to protect them from hate speech because hate speech is not the same thing. What do you, what do you mean by hate speech? I mean, speech that uh, either incites uh, hatred towards any particular group for any particular characteristic or uh, generates a kind of climate in which it becomes unfeasible uh, for people to live, a hostile climate, in other words. And you can't possibly be a student on, on a university campus living in a climate where your very existence is, is so routinely denigrated uh, that you are effectively... Right. And by, okay. virtue so, of, uh, by virtue of the speech that has been enabled, you effectively become a second-class citizen. That is not right. fair. Okay, so let's, let's, let's slow down because this is where it gets very complicated. So if we... It all depends on whether or not we want to go with the idea that the kid mixing the chemicals, if if there is a um, if there's a moral duty on a governmental agency to uh, limit that individual's free speech. So if you say no, well, that to me, and if my reasoning is incorrect, let me know. That seems to me the gold standard of whether right. or not we should do that. But if you say no, if if you say if you say yes, his freedom of speech should be limited, then we can start talking about things like the university experience, et cetera, et cetera. If you okay. say no, it should it should not, and he should be allowed to do that, then you're talking about some something else. You're not talking about a governmental body regulating speech. You're talking about the responsibility of private or public entities towards students on a university campus, which is a different question. It is a different question, but but it, but the principle is the same. Insofar as if you are willing to acknowledge that there are in fact limits to speech for the protection and safeguarding of people, then that as a principle can be applied across the board. I mean, yeah. I, I, let's so let's take the university thing. So okay. so let's say let's say for example, I'm, I'm trying to think of of, of something that. It's almost impossible, at least for me at this moment, to think of an example that doesn't involve racial minorities or sexual minorities. But the problem is, if I give that, we're so close to it, it's very difficult to think of it. But let's let's go. Do you have the word ginger over there? Yeah. Redheads. Redheads. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we do. Okay, I'm, not, I'm never really sure. We do. A, m- a much maligned group. So, okay. Are they really? No, not really. Well, it's one of those. It's it is a form of prejudice, I suppose. But it's it, but it's you know there isn't a history of red-headed people being rounded up and persecuted. So you know it's okay to talk. Okay. About. Well, let's use let's use gingers then, because I don't think there's any. And I'm going to say there's no persecution against gingers. I'll get five thousand hateful emails from <laughs> red-headed people. But okay, let's pretend that there's no persecution against against gingers against yeah. people with red hair, and. Uh, you're having a conversation in a college class and someone stands up and says, why should we listen to her or him? Uh, uh, she has red hair. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good example of what I'm talking about. It isn't sustainable for someone to be a student within that climate. And that's, that's as a product of speech. Right. So, that, so that's the example that I want to explore right now. Right. So I think we need to make a distinction and the, this, this is not a particularly nuanced idea free speech versus ideas versus free speech and immutable characteristics. And so 
that's the, the rule that I've always had in my classroom is that immutable characteristics are off the table because people can't change them. That's your limit. That's what I mean, is that when it comes to free speech, we all do have our limits. You just happen to have set yours in one particularly arbitrary position and someone else might no, do no, it. But, no, but that, no, but it's not arbitrary at all. In fact, it's the opposite of arbitrary. <laughs> it's not arbitrary because um, in the realm of ideas, ideas don't deserve dignity. People deserve dignity, right? So anything in the realm of ideas is free game, but it doesn't do anybody any good to criticize a ginger or me with because I'm you know 55 because of an age or someone in a wheelchair because those those aren't uh, characteristics one can do something about and in the intellectual in in arena what we're seeing now is we're seeing that the criticism of immutable characteristics is bleeding into the the criticism of ideas because people think that their ideas are identity markers right, right. and so the, the, the problem is that there's a conflation of those two categories. Now, uh, let, but let's j just humor me for a moment and let's go back to the, the so someone stands up in the class yep. and says, this person is a ginger. Why should we take him them seriously? Yes. What is the best way to deal with that? Is the best way to deal with that to say, shut up and sit down? Or is the best way to deal with that to simply say, why? I think the best way could be uh, to say, if you want to be part of this university community, then you have to uh, be uh, prepared uh, to include those who are different from yourself. Therefore, by standing up and making such a, an offensive declaration against a specific uh, member of the community, you are effectively disqualifying yourself from membership of that community and you should be expelled. Okay. Do you think that what you just said is going to help somebody um, live a life of reason and change their mind? Not the, per not the person who made the statement, but what it will do, it will enable the person with red hair in that classroom to continue uh, to participate in the learning environment. And, and Okay. But it will, will it enable the person with red hair in the environment to better deal with situations like that in the future when they rely upon someone else to cast aside and cast out someone who's mean to them? How did, that, how did that help them develop resilience? How did that help them develop better argumentation? How did that help them engage? It, 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 it actually made them more brittle. But do they need a resilience against that kind of thing if we are able to cultivate a society in which that is absolutely not acceptable anywhere, not just within the classroom? Given that we've not been able to cultivate a society in which that's, I mean, that's, isn't that the whole point of those who argue on your side? But look, so just make, think about it. Just really think about this for a second. If you believe that there are moral truths and you believe that you can rationally derive those, and if someone says, well, this person has red hair, they shouldn't be allowed to speak, shut up and sit down, you ginger. And the best thing, and that's, I mean, this is what I would do in that situation. Of course, I'm never going to be in that situation, but I'd say, well, why do you think that? What's your argument for that? And I would really listen to their reasons and I would, I would engage them on that. And in the, the very act of me engaging them models it for other people witnessing it in the classroom. And I think in no short time, people will realize there's simply no evidence for that. It's a rank baseless prejudice. Exposing those prejudices, that's how you change the moral mind and, and help people. You're not helping the guy when you throw him out of class. 
you're not you're also doing doing a, a moral disservice to either the students because then they rely upon authority as opposed to developing their own arguments. But that is built on the assumption that you will win that argument. That the, the, no, the, no, it's not even about winning. Okay, let's say you don't win the argument. Let's say that this yeah, person has that, some yes. unbelievably something you've never thought of before, like. I mean, I, that's the problem with never having thought of it before. I haven't thought of it before, but they have some argument that's that's uh, remarkable. Hmm. Wouldn't the thing to do then to be to say, you know what, this is really interesting. It contradicts a deeply held moral belief that I have, and yeah. I'm going to go look up, look at it. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to reflect on it, and I'm going to invite you to do the same, and then to come back and then to recenter the conversation on that. But I think you're underestimating the extent to which uh, those demagogues, for instance, people who are fluent, people who can express bigotry and hatred in a way that sounds rather appealing, that they have the effect of of winning the argument. So in that classroom that's scenario, that's not true. No, but it's just not true. Well, let me just finish the it's point. It's not me... true historically. It's not true. We would never have gotten to where we are now if what you're saying is true. Well, let, let me just let me just finish the point though. I mean, hypothetically, what I'm saying is, in that classroom situation, the person who stands up and says, uh, starts attacking the the redhead, and then you go in and say, well, why? And then you present the arguments against to 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 attempt to expose. How fallacious that person's position. I, I wouldn't do well. Hold, I got to pause right there. I wouldn't do that. My first order of business is to truly understand what his or her arguments okay. were. Okay. So let's take the hypothetical that once they are elucidating their position to the rest of the class, the rest of the class start thinking, "Oh, actually, that's so well expressed that this person may have a point." And maybe then they will go out and begin to demonize other other redheaded people. And sooner, sooner or later, that becomes the norm. And to give the historical context of this, surely you're not denying. Uh, that the success of Adolf Hitler uh, in Nazi Germany. There you go. It's always that. Well, <laughs> hey, wait a minute now. There isn't a historian. Look, I've recently read Richard Evans' book about this. He talks again and again about how his superb oratory, that this is, you know, everyone acknowledges, we all hate Hitler, but everyone acknowledges uh, that he had skill as an orator. And as a result of that, he was able to persuade people that Jewish people were less than human, that Jewish people were vermin. And, and so surely you must acknowledge that, that there is a danger when those with a command of rhetoric and fluency are advancing uh, toxic ideas, because those ideas do spread. There is an element okay, of social yeah, contagion yeah, that goes on. Sir, sir, I'll, give you what look, I'll give you what you're looking for. I'll give you what you want. In the short term, there's no question about it. But now think of what we think of Nazis. Think of what we think of Hitler. So in the short term, that's the case. I mean, the, what you're saying, it's just it's just factually false. There's just a mount. There's a not even a mount. There's a history of the the demonstration of every single argument you've made being false in the long. That's why we have the freest and most you know, um, racially tolerant society. Wherever. I think just nope. read something. If you look at the, the percentage of people in this country that um, view interracial marriage, I mean, we used to have miscegenation laws in this country not that long ago, right? In, yeah. in, in certain, the last to go in certain parts of the South. But now I think it's 94% of the people don't even uh, approve of, of interracial marriage. Yeah, but you, so, say that, you say that these things are, are temporary, that ultimately what you're saying is that these things are resolved and that, that the good wins out. And you talk about miscegenation there. You know, it's all very well saying, well, nobody now is opposed, very, very few people are now opposed to, to interracial marriage. But that does, that's, not, that's not any kind of consolation for those people that lived through the period when it was uh, universally despised, well, yeah, similarly, but what would be 
But the, yeah, point, the point isn't a consolation. I mean, of course, it's terrible if you live through that period. But the point is the way to get out of that is through free speech and open dialogue. And but, that's but, exactly what we've done. And but taking again, that away is you're reversing that progress. Again, if you look at it, it's always and I gave you examples of the civil rights movement, et cetera. It's always people who speak up. And I also read that piece from Ira Glasser. It's the people who are oppressed and minorities. Those are the greatest allies of, of free speech and free discourse, not the people in power. It's a complete reversal of the argument you've made. But I know it, there is a risk of, of being accused of invoking Godwin's law, and it always becomes about Hitler. But actually, it is, inc it is incredibly important as a historical uh, precedent because it's all very well saying, yes, OK, now neo-Nazism is oh, in terminal. Okay. Is in, wait a minute. Let me make the point. Let me make the point. Neo-Nazism is in terminal decline. Uh, there is a consensus that neo-Nazism is appalling and abhorrent and all, the, and all the rest of it. This is no consolation for the six million Jews who were killed in the Third Reich. This is no like if we'd have had. Do you deny that if people had limited his free speech at the time, those people would not have been persecuted and murdered? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, would he have been allowed to remain and sustain in power had he not had brutal speech restrictions enforced by the Gestapo? That's the question to ask. The question, the, the issue is how to con, how to how to fight that. And the way to fight that is through more free and more open societies. The fact that they didn't have free speech to counter what he was saying that enabled him to go on a, a crusade of a murderous rampage. That's the problem. The but problem is that we're duped by, by somebody who happens to be a good orator. The, the, the problem is multifaceted, but the, the lack of the ability for people to make criticisms. And instead of teaching people to withhold criticisms or instead of teaching people to remain silent, we have to teach them how to speak up. We have to teach them how to engage these arguments of whatever, whatever, we have to give them a tool set. And every time you you kick the guy out of class who, who's mad at redheads or upset with them, you rob them of that ability to create those tools to use them to be able to defend themselves, to stand up and fight back and give a punch and take a punch. You're taking something fundamentally, fundamentally Root, what it is to have an education, what it is to live in the world. That's what you're doing when you kick the guy out of class. But are you not underestimating the, the power of language to create actual real world violence? I mean, you make this point about Nazi Germany, that in fact, Nazi Germany were prescribing speech and that that's part of the problem. I accept that argument that, that you're making. But if you take an example of uh, the genocide in Rwanda, now this was... Uh, uh, largely a catalyst to this genocide was, of course, the Tall Trees radio broadcasts. Right. And all of a sudden, and, and you must acknowledge here, you know, these aren't people who would naturally take a machete to their neighbours. You know, these aren't, these aren't uh, people who have always had this capacity for mass murder. I don't know, and Bill Clinton, in Bill Clinton's book, uh, he said it was the biggest mistake of his presidency. And when you drill down on that, those tribal hatreds were very rich and very deep for for yes, uh, generations. You're grafting on a concept that has a unique tribal history of hatred going back generations and generations. And the solution to that 
you, that, so, okay. So free speech isn't a panacea. It's not like you give people free speech and then everything's going to be great. You need a moral infrastructure that's developed in, in concert with free speech. So, so you just, you just can't graph something on like that. But, but given that we don't live in that world, given that we, we live in a, an, it, we do live in that world. It's an imperfectible no, no, world. Wait, with, no, wait a second. We, we do live in that world. They don't live in that world. That's why that problem, that's one of the reasons the problem, but we absolutely do live in that world. But you, you must know that you must recognize that human beings, we, we all, it's like Solzhenitsyn says about good and evil cuts through the heart of every human person that, you know, we all have the capacity for violence. We all have the capacity uh, for that kind of activity uh, that we see, uh, uh, that we saw in Rwanda and that it took the stimulation of language, it took the, uh, right. the, the. So wait a second. So you you mean to tell me in this whole discussion, and I'll be blunt, that your best argument against free speech is the Tall Trees podcast from Rwanda? Do you think that those people would? Is that is that well, your well, best I'd like, argument? I'd like you to answer the question though. Do you think that if those radio broadcasts had been prohibited, the genocide would have taken place? I, you're asking me a hypothetical. I have absolutely no, there, there could have been some other incident that caused it. I mean, who knows? That's there's, you're asking me to speculate against something. I have no idea. And I'm absolutely no expert on the Hutus and the Tutsis. I have, I'm that's way outside my African history is way outside my area of expertise. But it is a good example of when, of when, uh, you know, uh, well, incitement well, to violence. I mean, look, so, what so it is you, an example so, of incitement. Look, so you would all you would need for that, and if you read the book, The Washing of the Spears, that you you would learn that tribal history, uh, African history, many tribes hunted down other tribes and showed that they were uh, because they believed that they were racially inferior. Yes. So there are deep seated tribal hi- histories that you and I, I certainly don't have access to these things. I'm no no expert on this. But to blame that on free speech is an astonishing stretch, given that believe history, that, given that African history, and I know very little about it. I do know from the you know handful of books, probably under ten books I read about. It, I do know that that is pre pre that that has been going on for an awfully long time. But, but in order for decent people to commit atrocities, they have to, in their mind, dehumanize. For decent people to commit atrocities, they need to believe absurdities. And the way they believe yes. absurdities is if they don't have an infrastructure, if they've never really seriously considered ideas, if they don't have a robust internal life, if their ideas aren't challenged, if their moral intuitions. I mean, that should be the whole purpose of the university, not to deepen one, one's moral commitments that one comes in with, but it's to challenge, it's to question, it's to engage, it's to give people the best ideas from people who actually believe it. And John Stuart Mill talks about that. That's the kind of society that that's the kind of system that we want to create and cherry picking one example that almost definitely from the little I know about it caused the genocide seems to me to be not just specious, specious, but just disingenuous, given that uh, there's been genocides in the context on the continent due to to tribal uh, histories that have been going on for centuries. But but, but you don't have to cherry pick at all. You can take any major atrocity throughout history. You can take the Khmer Rouge. You can take the example of good, good people. Khmer Rouge is a great example of that. Well, no, but soldiers, decent people 
taking a child and smashing that child's skull against a tree. That is not normal behavior. That is something that happens when they become persuaded that their victim is no longer human. Right. We can hinge the conversation on that. What causes good people to do bad things? And Christopher Hitchens has, has written very eloquently about that. Is it the, the fact that they've genuinely engaged with ideas and they think, no, it's the moral mind overrides the rational mind, right? It's that they've become beholden or swayed to, to an, ide an ideology that others people and what's the best prophylactic against that? Is the best prophylactic against that to prohibit speech? No. The best prophylactic against that is to expose them to the best ideas. But I'm not. That's I'm not. Saying, I'm not saying prohibit speech. I'm saying prohibit uh, the the uh, the egregious speech or proper. Let's say propaganda. That's part of the problem. I mean, look at. The, I don't know. Again, I can't speak to your island, but we're having a terrible. Um, uh, it's not even an argument. It's just a bitter, caustic nastiness about vaccine passports and mandatory yep. vaccinations in this country and what that means. And I think one of the reasons it's just so caustic and so acerbic and people are so um, uh, really abnegated any kind of, of rational thinking and it's a meme war, et cetera, is because on both sides of the, of the aisle, people simply aren't equipped to deal with this. I mean, it's so emotional and, and it's just the most base discussion right now. And the, so why, so, so what, so, so is the solution then? That's a good example of what we were talking about earlier about when authority figures should be able to set the parameters, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you know nothing, if you're not an epidemiologist and you know nothing about vaccines and you are spreading fake news about the vaccines, that has a real world effect because suddenly yeah. people don't take the vaccine. And that's an example of where it is right to defer to the judgment of those who know best to say that these. And, and yeah, that, that in, in it, you know, if we lived in a society in which there weren't a legitimacy crisis, if we lived in a society in which we could actually defer to experts because they gain their expert their expertise through a, a path that was based on merit uh, and the best available data and the best available institutions. And we had a trust in our experts. I think that would be the case. But this is a multifaceted problem where people it's a legitimacy crisis where people simply don't trust the government. Right. They, no, no, not the government. They don't trust the people. They don't trust the experts. So th that's a that's a very complicated problem. But I made the the case about vaccinations and vaccine passports and mandatory vaccines because it's an example of what happens not when there's a lack of free speech, but when there's a lack of thoughtful consideration and when it's precisely the case that we can't trust and we don't trust our experts. And we can't go to the peer reviewed literature because we know that's been corrupted because it's what gets published is morally fashionable. So the gold standard, the imprimatur of what we should trust is now is no longer available to us. But then to say things like, look, I don't have the faintest clue about ivermectin. I never even heard of ivermectin until Brett started talking about it. I, I'm it way outside my area but of expertise. But the question is, when would it be acceptable to do that? And what is the result in aggregate when we start saying, OK, well, we can't talk about this or we can't. You're not talking about ivermectin. And I'm even hesitant to talk about talking about ivermectin because I know so little about it. That's not going to stop people from taking ivermectin. That's just going to make people think that there's a conspiracy about ivermectin, right? So even in those cases, we we need to allow discourse, even if it turns out to be false. Even though those falsehoods can have real world consequences for people. Correct. Correct. Is that, because price worth, to, is that a price worth paying for for potential death? And the way to protect people from from bad ideas isn't to say you can't say them. It's it's to have better ideas win out. And the only way that you have better ideas win out is through discourse.
it seems though that you're in a uh well let's put it this way a position of privilege and it's all very well you saying that you know the marketplace of ideas is a wonderful thing uh because that means that we can all participate on a living level playing field but that is not the case when we live in a society in which certain people are marginalized and the question i think of who gets to speak this needs to be addressed. You know, you're you're straight, you're white, you're male. You benefit from being in the dominant position of power. And if, uh, but but there are a lot of people who don't get to speak. They are not they are not heard within the current system. So isn't it why? Right. The solution to that is to not deny people privilege. Privilege. It's to give people who don't have privilege privilege. The the other thing that's particularly odious and vile, if I may, about that argument is that th- that's an argument that one has. Uh, access to truth claims on the basis of an immutable characteristic. It's just guised in it's masquerading as power. But what it really is, is that what you're really saying is that your access to the truth is limited by some property of who you are. Really odious notion. This is the essence of positionality. This is the essence that that, that if you, you know, you, of course, only perceive the world as you perceive it because of who you are and your circumstances. But, you know, if, if you, if you, uh, are from a marginalized background, you you have a different worldview, surely, and that should be respected and 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 legitimized. Connect that to free speech now. Well, because at the moment, the people we hear most from, the people with the microphone, the people who are amplified, are those who are already in positions of power, and therefore it is in their interests to maintain that status quo. But I just but that's called privilege preserving epistemic pushback. That privilege from the literature, that privilege will always seek to preserve itself. But I've given you the, numerous examples of, of historically and empirically of how that's not true. Free speech serves the interests of the vulnerable and the most marginal, most marginalized. I think if we can agree upon that, we can have a point upon but, which but we can go forward. But don't you accept that we would be living in a much, this would be a much better world if, uh, say, a street evangelist didn't get to stand there and shout at people of different ethnicities. Or, oh my gosh, or, no, not at all. It would be a much worse world. You know, Michael Shermer from the Skeptic Society told me a really interesting story. I think he told my class this when he spoke in my class. And that was uh, one of the claims for Holocaust deniers is that the gates on Auschwitz, the, the locks on the, the, the doors on Auschwitz were, were fake and they didn't, they didn't lock and you could actually open them. So, he actually flew to Germany <laughs> and went and looked at the locks himself and basically started inquiring when all met with people and all the way up the top. And he learned uh, that those locks and you have them on your show. You can talk about this. This is a very interesting story. He learned that those weren't the original locks. They were subsequently placed on there afterwards. The original locks were t- taken off. Right. But it's precisely that we, that we, um, allowed, and again, Hitchens has talked about this, um, you know, people ought to be able to deny the Holocaust. And when they do po- point something out like that, we allow their open speech. We have other people like Shermer who goes and investigates and now comes to the truth. So when those ideas come up again, they can say that's not true. And here's how we know it. So even allowing odious ideas to be um, that's one of the things we've learned from from philosophy 
over the years, even allowing ideas to come up. Like one of the great things, just as a more pedestrian example, but very practical, I think I think creationism has been incredibly good. The teaching of creationism and uh, allowing creationist ideas out there has been very good for evolutionary biologists like Dawkins and Coins and others in general to hone their ideas, right? So, so that now they, okay, so how do we address this point? How do, oh, the gates on Auschwitz, how do we, but those one of the things that it does is, is that it sharpens not only the arguments on the other side, but it enables people to to deal with those arguments more effectively and more efficiently. And that, that, you can never get to that if you disallow those critiques. Well, that but that strikes me that you, you, you're, you're assuming that people have uh, the kind of intellectual curiosity to pursue those avenues. If you take someone like David Irving, uh, you know, making his case right. uh, effectively, um, you know, m- uh, right. claiming that the Holocaust was not as severe as right. it was. And and then you have uh, someone like Richard Evans, who, you know, s- systematically dismantles that argument so that it's all it's all there to see. We can verify that Irving was wrong. OK, are people really expected to go to go away and read what okay. Richard Evans says about this? Here's my question to you. Are we better off with Evans's book or not? Absolutely, we are. Okay, but, but, so but we, but the we, only we way we have Evans's book is through Irving. Yeah, but you must. You, yes, but you know, uh, from everything we know about populism, that those kind of shortcut, um, flamboyant, kaleidoscopic arguments that are very appealing uh, and maybe based on absolutely nothing, uh, they travel faster uh, than rigorous study. Any argument that you make is now subsumed with the fact that is overridden by the fact that you said that we're better off with that. You're better off with Evans's book. Well, I think we're better. You'd have off. to change that claim because any claim subsequent to that would just be specious. okay. Okay, I will accept. Uh, I think we are better off with Evans' book because there is now a resource that we can go to in order to point at Irving and say, "Look, th- this has been debunked." Right? That's why it makes it. That's why it makes the world a better place. But that does not mean that I'm suggesting uh, that there are there will be those who will be more attracted to uh, the 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 populist kind of uh, language to, to, the, oh. to the kind of short, so, almost and conspiratorial way of thinking. I'll give you what you're looking for. I'll mm-hmm. give you what you're looking for. Okay. I'll give you, I'll, I'll sh- sh- shortcut it. I will agree with you and that people do not formulate their beliefs on the basis of evidence. I'll give it to you. Yeah. And I will give you that um, often people have emotional reasons for forming beliefs, psychological reasons, may- maybe they're cajoled into it. Maybe they live in communities in which they have a little skepticism, but they want to get along with everybody. So they want to fit in the, the, the uh, psychology and religious literature, the, the religious literature, religious psycho- psychological literature, excuse me, is very clear about that. It's one thing I've learned in the last few years. So I'll give that to you. But the fact remains, if we, a sincere person wants to investigate the issue of how many Jews were killed in the Holocaust, when they were killed, et cetera, the only reason we have a, that resource available to us with such meticulous detail is because somebody else has challenged and questioned that and someone has meticulously gone and taken the time. Holocaust deniers aren't reasonable people. They're not interested in the facts. They're interested in, in legitimizing their prejudice. So they're not going oh, okay, to. Okay. Okay. Well, so then that's if I were in a conversation with, with someone and say, well, is your, is your argument formed on the basis of reason and evidence or is it formulated? Most people, and I think this is one of the things that I learned from, from the new atheist movement. Most people, a, um, and if you allow me this, this, uh, I, I don't know, it's a meaningful digression. I'd appreciate yeah. it. Most people, 
who are Christians and atheists, the disagreement will be atheists will say, well, you, you don't have any evidence. And the Christians will say, no, we, we have evidence and it's just not true. There is evidence for the existence of God. But what those people mean as a threshold for evidence is what constitutes reliable evidence is different. So for the Christians, they'll say, some Christians say, well, you know, I have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's a different perspe- per- perception of what it would take to warrant a belief. And Plantinga and others have some wonderful things about w- uh, warranted belief and justified belief. What you'll see in the case of Holocaust denialism or what have you, it's simply the same argument from atheism and belief in God carries over to everything else. One thing I've learned from studying this from so much is that it's not that people don't have the same um, they don't think that they have any evidence or they think they have evidence. It's that they think that the evidence they have is sufficient to warrant the confidence in the belief they have. Yeah. So the very idea of re- rebutting having Evans's book out there is is a marker to people who at some level, as, as Aristotle, wisdom begins in wonder and people just want to know. And the world is better off for having that book than not. And the way that we we got to have these things, the, the, the way that we've come to hone our knowledge is because other people have challenged and questioned that. And that's given us in every domain of thought, the ability to fill in those gaps in those holes with reason, evidence, and argumentation. And if all of a sudden you say, well, there are certain domains of thought in which you're not allowed to pursue, and in this case, in the matter of race, gender, and sexuality, then we never get to develop ideas and evidence and arguments that are better upon which we can make policy decisions, which then lead to our flourishing. So a lot of what we've talked about has been about the societal impact of absolute free speech. But let's just draw it down to the idea of the impact on the individual. Because one of uh, my concerns would be that I think you and I would both agree that language can hurt. Speech can hurt. It can cause harm. Beyond that, it can cause uh, stress. It can cause depression. It can cause physical illness and even death. So therefore, when we say that words can be a form of... Okay, like a death? Yes. uh, People have died from stress-related illnesses, which brought on uh, by harassment, say. So, <laughs> okay, that, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Keep going. Okay, keep going. No, you know, uh, and so when when activists say words are violence, that's not to be taken literally. What they're saying it's to be understood as an acknowledgement that the language in of itself can have a a a, a, a physiological uh, impact, and and, yeah. and 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 you must right. I'd like you to concede that language can be hurtful and can be psychologically damaging. And that in turn, psychological damage can lead to physical harm. I'd like you to acknowledge that. So uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt have addressed this both in the coddling and in there. I think it's the the Atlantic piece from the psychologist. I will not. The coddling of the American mind, the book. Yeah. Yeah. uh, 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 They they, uh, take a square aim at that argument. So Let's say that that's the case. Let's say that some individuals uh, find, and and I know uh, I don't I don't think it's much of a stretch at all, if, especially if you look online. It's almost never in person nowadays. It's almost always online, and I see this with my kids and their friends, etc. So, it seems pretty obvious to me that language does hurt. Do, do you have the expression on the island over there? Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. We do have it. I think it might have even originated here. I think you might have stolen it from us. 
No, really, I thought we get. I thought we gave you. I always no. I, I, you people speak such good English. We no, I think it's well. just because you you think you you know you've got it because Dave Chappelle said it, but we, I think we came up with it first. To be honest, uh, well, it's interesting. I don't know who came up with it first, but but um, I'll give it. I'll give it to you in this this case. But um, okay. so th- think about. I think it's worth dwelling on that for for a bit. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. So that places the onus on. The person to when they hear something to not be hurt by it, to ignore it, to develop a mechanism or what have you. That's not a choice, Peter. That's not a choice. You can't tell me that you've never been hurt by something that someone has said to you. I don't believe that. That, that. It is not a choice necessarily to take offense. It's not a choice necessarily to feel well, no, that's a choice to take offense is, to, is a choice, but to be hurt is not. Right. Okay. Well, at least you acknowledge that. So, so in that sense, you do acknowledge that words cause harm. Well, no, 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 let's hold on. I want to go back to the stick and sticks and stones thing. And then I'll, I'm happy to, to, to let you, to, to let you go down that, that road. Um, so, so there's something, there's something really interesting about the idea that you're not relying on someone else, not to be cruel to you or not to be mean to you. Because the fact of the matter is you can only change your response to things. You can't change how other people are going to treat you. You can't change if other people demean you for being gay or mm. white or what, what, what have you. Um, I, I can't change that either. But what we should be teaching people to do is to, given that that's just the reality and some people are just cruel, yeah. you're just not going to stop that. But what you can do is you can teach people, you can give them tools to better enable them to deal with that. And what are those tools? How how can you deal with that? If if, okay, if well, that's I, another that's another discussion that gets us off the free speech. Thing, okay, but, but but given that given that as you have acknowledged, some people are simply cruel. There are cruel people in the world, right. and it sh- should they really have free reign to be cruel to someone else when it actually has an impact on that person's? Because I mean, we're talking about liberty here. Don't mm. I have a right to live a life uh, which is un- unencumbered? Uh, by the um, depredations of uh, the malicious. That was a lovely sentence. Give me that again. Well, I can't remember what I said, but do, do I not have the right? The depredations of the malicious. I have well, to remember well, that. Metaphorically, you know, they, they are encroaching on my liberty. They are invading right. liberty by, by causing... The, so maybe the disagreement is what to do about that, given that those right. people are just simply going to exist anyway. One well, thing you can do is silence and prosecute those who who... who well, yeah, and we do. We have certain laws for slander and libel. You know, you, you can't just run around accusing people of certain crimes without without evidence. Um, and, and even then, you need to take them to court. So we have defamation of character. So yeah. Uh, so so we already have a legal infrastructure based upon. A, a, I'm no expert in contemporary jurisprudence, but a, a a a rather lengthy history of that. So we've developed a an architecture to um to deal with those those uh, um cases in the court system that architecture is based on the limitations of people's speech so you're not an absolutist no that that arch- architecture is based upon a system of precedence which we've which we've taken from previous court cases right so 
that that's what it means to to develop a system of laws, right? So it's it's build upon. I know, I understand that, but you're saying that you accept the idea that you should not be allowed to defame me. You're not. You shouldn't be allowed to go online and say something that is factually wrong about me, which will have an impact on my career and reputation. And you accept that, which means you do not accept. Which means you are not a free speech absolute. You do accept that certain speech should be prescribed by the state. Actually, interestingly, it's almost never prescribed by the state. It's prescribed by the platform. So I think, again, what we're talking about here is what the threshold should be. And I think many people, you know, libertarians among them are, um, they're very, uh, not even leery. They don't, they don't want to, they don't want to say there should be any limitations. And I'm not a free speech absolutist. I'm pretty close to it. Yeah, but I am I am very concerned. So I do believe in those libel laws. I do believe in those defamation laws, uh, as particularly as someone who's experienced it themselves false many false accusations. Yeah, and so I'm not a free speech absolutist. The problem is I fully acknowledge that once I say that, it's just a slippery slope. It's it's, it's a it's a roller coaster all the way down, and I'm not sure what to do about that. Well, that's the key question, isn't it? Because I, is it not the case that either you're a free speech absolutist or you don't really believe in free speech? Or certainly, could that not be? Could you not be accused of that? Yeah, well, you could be accused of that or anything else. I'm not sure I accept that dichotomy. I, I think that, um, I mean, on the surface of it, it does seem to be, there seems to be some truth to that. I'm not sure what to do about the problem. Um, I, I don't know. Right. Well, it seems to me maybe you're drawing a distinction between speech itself and uh, instances where speech is the, uh, I suppose, the apparatus by which a crime is committed. So, for instance, when we criminalise espionage or perjury, we're not clamping down on freedom of speech and we're not punishing the speech. We're punishing the crime which happens to have been mediated through speech. And that's the distinction. Right. And I was the perjury was the example that I was thinking of. And so you you if somebody lies under oath, you can't they can't they can't claim free speech. Right. And right. Or blackmail, say, like, can I say that it is my right. free speech to to blackmail someone? Exactly. So so, so I'm not a, a well, I'm not a free speech absolutist, but I don't think that the people who consider them fr- fr- themselves free speech absolutists would say that people should be allowed to to perjure themselves. Yeah. So, so I think it. We need it at this at this point in the conversation, we would need a type of granularity that really parses out those individual differences. And I don't think that it's very useful to say, well, I'm universally or I mean, you really have to define those and disambiguate that term. I mean, it's at this point in the conversation, I think it's it's far more complicated. Can I move on to the idea of cancel culture just because of your own experiences? And well, it's just that I'm very much aware that you've obviously been through this at at, at Portland State where people have been um, smearing you, uh, saying things about you, attempting to damage your reputation, that kind of thing. Is what we call or what you would call cancel culture, is that not just other people exercising their own free speech about you? Is it not the case that cancel culture can often be, and I'm not talking about you here, but just generally, it's another case that cancel culture can simply be people holding the powerful to account and saying, actually, we're going to, we're going to, when you say something that is so horrible and so toxic, we're going to say something about it. In other words, free speech should have consequences. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the, what, what's, the, what's the question there? 
It's not really a question. It's more an argument. Oh. My, my point is that uh, people claim that cancel culture is a threat to free speech. And I'm saying that cancel culture actually is a manifestation of free speech. That's <laughs> <laughs> a, a clever argument. Um, and so and so therefore you would say that cancel culture is good. Yes. And then you want to put me in the position of saying that because I'm for free speech, cancel culture is bad. No, I'm saying that I would be of the view that you would be against cancel culture. And I think that there's, that's a contradiction. Okay, I see. I see. Okay, so you, I just want to make sure Absolutely. I understand the argument. And I'm yeah. going to have, need another cup of coffee for this for a second. So you, you, you're making the argument that um, because I'm for free speech and cancel culture is a manifestation of free speech, then I would be for cancel culture. Exactly. That's it. Okay. Um, so I'm against cancel culture and I'm, I'm for free speech. Uh, but again, I'm not a free speech absolutist in a traditional right. sense. Uh, I certainly believe that people have the, the freedom to, so what is cancel culture? It's basically a boycott, right? So, but it's, it's a, it's a boycott, but it's also, it's also maybe you, you create petitions about people. You criticize people, maybe robustly, maybe rudely. Um, um, you, 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 you create an online campaign of speech uh, to denigrate someone because you perceive that what that person has done is uh, is uh, is has been dangerous for society, and that we have to stand up to those people. So I mean, that's what that's my point. Hey, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to um, mischaracterize your position. There's no statute of limitations on that, right? Well, cancel culture, as we know, uh, you can dig up anything anyone has ever said, and and right. even so, if they're dead, <laughs> as it happens. Okay, so so let's take this step by step. I don't think cancer culture is a good thing, but let's see if we can find some common points of agreement. Do you think that there should be a statute of limitations on this? Like you, you everybody gets it, you know, two free comments or a year or two years or, or, you know, like a Louis CK, the comedian. Well, I'm not talking about people just making mistakes or misspeaking. I'm talking about if, so, you know, I wouldn't say uh, a racist thing because I am not a racist. And therefore, if someone has ever said, a racist thing that says something about their character, which requires calling out. It's not just it's not just a slip of the tongue, is it? I'm not I'm not sure that's true. Why does it recall? I know that's the essence of anti-racism, but I'm not I'm not. Why would that be? Well, it's not because it comes from it comes from somewhere. If, if you are making statements like that, it means they, they are the uh, uh, articulation of a belief. And uh, and and that kind of belief, which is so irrational, and so um, didn't didn't you just say before in our conversation that uh, which I I think is very true because I've experienced that myself. Um, when you were a kid, people would say things like you know fag. That was the worst thing when I was yeah. a kid, at least on fifty five, to be called in the playground, right? You know, yeah. Um, uh, so that's a manifestation of a wide scale cultural belief, right? That that's more of an example of, I suppose, a kind of social co contagion. A kind of uh, it's yeah. the word that everyone uses, therefore it becomes acceptable. That's what that is. Yeah, and at certain times, people believe certain things, like about gay people or black people or what have you. Right? Yes, I understand what you're driving at here. You're 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 Am suggesting. I driving at? Well, it, it sounds to me that you're suggesting I'm contradicting myself, because I, on, the, on the one hand. I'm, I have made the claim that uh, those kind of phrases and attitudes are almost not sincerely held, but are kind of uh, taken on from the society within which you live. 
which I suppose mitigates the responsibility for those claims. And then, and then just now I, I made the opposite claim, which is that if you ever say something homophobic, racist or whatever, it signifies right. something es- essential about your character. Yeah. So I, I accept this, that, that well, that's a contradiction. I accept that. Yeah. So let's pause on, on a moment and just reflect on what happened. So the way that um, you came to that, if I, if there's no other, I don't mean to sound pretentious, is, but the way that you came to that kind of realization was yep. through free speech itself. So this dialogue enabled you to come to that conclusion. Had we not had that this dialogue, you would not have come to that conclusion. So think in aggregate, when people are having these kind of conversations, sincerely engaging each other, think of in aggregate how that helps people to think to, to their moral clarity, their moral reasoning, how it helps us all lead a, a better life to the good life, how it helps us all reflect on our own beliefs and match those to reality, how all of those insights in aggregate bend the moral arc toward justice. So why on earth would we want to limit or pers- put, put um, prescriptions on that? Why would we want to take away a tool that advances human flourishing? Well, I think I was somewhat hoisted by my own petard at that point, but um, I think no. But that's no. That's a consequence of being honest with yourself. Yeah, and that's a consequence of what happens when two sincere people engage in a dialogue. And that's the other reason that you said something that was always in my my mind to the conversation that that just struck me as just completely false. You can engage people who don't sincerely. Um, believe what they say. And I gave the example of Socrates. My dogs are going crazy. Sorry for the noise. Um, I take the example of Socrates in the Platonic dialogue. Like when when he engaged people, it doesn't really matter if they genuinely, you know, I think uh, the phrase we used was uh, in good faith. It doesn't actually matter if they believe these things or not. Because the argument stands or falls by irrespective of sincerity. Yeah, but even more than than that, the argument has absolutely nothing to do with the immutable properties of the people who hold it. Truth is a truth is something we can all achieve. It's something we can all do. It's not limited to a few people. It's not limited to the privilege. I mean, that's what makes it true. Mm. And so what we need to do is we need to help people to develop you know, reasoning sets. You know, moral reasoning is very difficult to do, but it's probably the most important skill we can ever have. And right now we're failing people. We're not teaching people how to develop those tools. And if you don't develop those tools, and if you're thinking, oh, well, then the most vulnerable among us will not be able to fight back. You know, the whole, the fame, the pen is mightier than the sword. It's in a process of emancipation. This is the way you do that. Yes. Well, Peter, I think that's a really good place to to leave it because I think we've covered a lot of ground there. And uh, I have to say, it's been actually very enjoyable to oh. to play to play devil's advocate and to 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 really think through uh, the, the the opposing argument the argument against free speech and and where those people are coming from and to art- and to attempt to articulate those views honestly yeah you know uh, maybe it's presumptuous but I'd love to try to defend I'd love to swap sides and take your your side yeah I'd love to do the I- same thing again and take your side and then I'd love to go at you a little bit. I think that's exactly what we should do next time we talk. <laughs> Let's do that. It's All a right. date. Thanks so much for your time, Peter. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thank you for watching the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and Peter Bogosian. If you enjoyed our conversation, please do like and subscribe. And do also make sure you check out Peter's fantastic book, How to Have 
Impossible Conversations. I reviewed it once. I gave it a glowing review because it is a superb piece of work. Thank you very much for joining me. Goodbye.